Our sermon today is taken from John 4, verse 19 to 24. Here's the word of God. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Thus says the Lord. Howard Hughes was one of the most talented and successful people of the 20th century. He was a businessman, investor, film director, movie producer, pilot, and engineer whose net worth was approximately $2.5 billion when he died in 1976. After his death, his public relations director asked a casino that he owned in Las Vegas to show Howard Hughes the proper respect by giving him a minute of silence on his behalf. So the casino went eerily silent for the next 60 seconds. Then a pit manager looked at his watch, leaned forward and whispered, okay, he's had his moment. Now let's roll the dice. Now the reason I mention this humorous story is because if we're not careful as Christians, we can approach our worship with God the similar mentality, where worship on Sunday mornings becomes our quote-unquote minute of silence that we offer to God by listening to a sermon, praying, or doing religious activities, where we say, okay, God, we've given you your time. Now we're on our own for the rest of the week. Now, I pray that that's not the case, but all of us are currently going through a tough season in life where it's easy to become lackadaisical in our approach to worship. Perhaps this season of COVID and its struggles has caused us to feel a lack of motivation in our devotional lives, or even caused us to feel disconnected from God and other believers. I personally feel a sense of disconnection myself since it's been a long time since we've worshiped together in person. You know, several months ago, some friends from our church got married and at their wedding, I looked around and saw many brothers and sisters from our congregation who were there also. And I couldn't help but be reminded of how good it felt when we were all gathered together on Sunday mornings before quarantine. And what a great blessing and a privilege it was to be together in person to worship our God. And at that moment, I was actually kind of convicted that I had actually took worshiping together in person with God's people for granted. It's like I couldn't fully appreciate it until we were unable to meet together in person on the Lord's Day. And perhaps some of you feel the same way as well. If that's the case, my goal today is to help us all to understand the importance of worship so that we could have a greater appreciation for the privilege of worshiping God together as His people. But before we begin, though, I'd like to give you a clear picture of the biblical view of worship. Here's a definition that I think sums worship up best. Worship is a life response to the worthiness of its object, 
when we worship God, we do so in response to who he is. Our attitudes and actions reflect that we believe the character and conduct of God to be worthy of praise and adoration. And sometimes our worship is expressed through corporate singing, teaching, and giving. But it is also expressed in our daily lives through prayer, scripture reading, acts of kindness, gratitude, pure thoughts, and the like. End quote. What an accurate definition of worship that is. Now, with that being said, we'll look at our passage today under three headings, three headings. True worship is corporate and inclusive. Point number two, true worship is in spirit and in truth. And point number three, true worship is what the Father seeks. But first, true worship is corporate and inclusive. Look at verses 20 and 22. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Now notice the language here that both Jesus and the Samaritan use with reference to worship. How they speak of it in the plural, using personal pronouns. Our fathers worship. Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You, plural, worship what you do not know. We, plural, worship what we know. What's the point? What does all this mean? Well, I think it means that true worship begins on a personal basis with an individual believer. But the ultimate goal of worship is that it be corporate and done collectively by God's people. Think about it. There are many more examples of corporate worship in the Bible than there are of individual worship. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with individual worship. No, because if there were no individual worshipers, then we couldn't even have corporate worship at all. It wouldn't even exist. There's absolutely nothing wrong with personal, individual worship. In fact, the Bible tells us that both Abraham and Job bowed down and worshiped God as individuals. And likewise, the blind man in the New Testament, worship Jesus. But what I am suggesting is that the ultimate purpose of worship is that believers would all gather together collectively as a whole to praise, honor, and glorify God. I don't think it's by accident that the longest book in the Bible, which is the Psalms, is all about God's people gathering together collectively to praise and worship Him. Listen to some of the verses in the Bible that emphasize the importance of corporate worship. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two: I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Psalm 66, 4, all the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Psalm 86, 9, all the nations of the earth you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. They shall glorify your name. Psalm 95, 6, oh, let us come worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Hebrews 1, 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Hebrews 12, 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom 
that cannot be shaken. And therefore, let us offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Finally, Revelation 5.13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing, honor, and glory forever and ever. So you see, although worship begins with each individual believer, it is primarily a corporate affair as God's people join together each Lord's Day to ascribe glory to his name. And all of our corporate worship on earth is just a microscopic picture of what it will be in heaven, right? We ought to be practicing it, therefore, on earth. Friends, the Bible has a lot to say about worship for a reason. It's because worship is important to God. And if it's important to God, then it should likewise be important for us as well. Friends, I know it's easy during quarantine to kind of slip off the radar and to skip corporate worship every now and then. I understand the temptation, but I also understand that Sunday morning, many of us are probably zoomed out and tired from a long and busy work week. We're stressed out from having too much time with the kids and pressure of living in a world that's reeling from the effects of COVID-19, as well as all the challenges that that brings us on a daily basis. But we must remember that as Christians, we've been redeemed by God for worship. We were actually created by God for worship, and it's very important to him. You remember the words of God to Pharaoh through Moses to let my people go, that they might worship me in the wilderness. So as God's very own chosen people, friends, let us not respond negatively to God's call to worship. Worship is a corporate affair. But you know, the great thing about worship is that it's not just a corporate affair, right? Because it's also an inclusive one as well. Look at verse 20. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Notice in the dialogue between Jesus and the woman at the well, how she tries to make worship corporate and exclusive, right? She wants to limit worship to a particular location or specific people or place, as if worship was exclusively for Jews and Samaritans alone. But Jesus won't let her get away with that, right? Because he essentially says to her, no, that's not true. You have an incorrect view of worship because the hour is coming. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, Jesus is telling her, you have a wrong view of both the nature and extent of worship. Because to limit or to restrict worship to a particular people or location is to miss the entire point of it. Because true worship is spiritual in nature, and so it's not confined to a specific location or people group. And for that very reason, true worship itself is inclusive and available for all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Isn't that radical, friends? The way Jesus openly challenged her thinking about worship. You see, racism just didn't begin in the 20th century. No, the Jews were racist toward the Samaritans and every other people group as well, right? They refused to believe that God loved all people 
and always had planned to include Gentiles in the kingdom to save them through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But oh, how wrong they were. See, God's salvation is inclusive. You know, doesn't it feel good to be included in something? You know, when I was a kid, my uncle used to play, uh, hang out with this basketball player who was famous in Chicago. His name was Tree, and he was about six foot five inches tall, extremely handsome, and a very, very talented basketball player. And at the time, he did things on the basketball court that I only seen Michael Jordan do. Well, one day, Tree showed up on the basketball court in the projects where I live. He just happened to show up. I mean, it was packed and full of people. All the good basketball players were there. And all of a sudden, Tree and another guy started choosing teams, right? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm standing there thinking to myself, well, there's no way that this guy's going to pick me. I am the least talented and shortest person out here, right? Well, next thing I know, Tree looks past everybody else on the court, and he stares straight into my eyes, and he says, I got him. Not only did he choose me, but he picked me first. Now, needless to say, we won every game that day. It wasn't even close. Tree dominated everybody, while at the same time making me feel included, like I was special. I was so happy that day that I couldn't wait to run home and tell my uncle everything that happened. You see, he made me feel included, like I was part of something. And this is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. You see, as Gentiles, he has included us in his plan of salvation and treated us like we're special. Now, on the other hand, it feels awful to be excluded from something, right? Like a party that you wanted so desperately to attend that you didn't get invited to. Or perhaps some friends had a little get-together and they forgot to invite you to join them. It doesn't feel good, does it? be excluded from something. Well, Jesus is telling this Samaritan woman who was despised and excluded by the Jews and probably even ostracized from her own people for having five husbands. She was never invited probably to most parties and get-togethers, right? But Jesus is telling her that God loves you and passionately desires to make you a part of his own family. How radical is that? What a blessing it is that true worship, the worship of God, is both corporate and inclusive. And this brings us to our second point, and that is that true worship must be done in spirit and in truth. Look at verses 23 and 24 with me. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit, and in truth. Now, it's important to point out that the Samaritans were not worshiping God in spirit nor in truth in the time that Jesus confronted this woman in our passage, because not only did they have their own designated places of worship, but they rejected the entire Old Testament, except their very own version of the five, first five books of Moses. And so Jesus is trying to help this woman to understand that real and genuine worship is true because true worship is a product of the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's heart that enables them to love God and want to serve him freely without obligation. So in a very real sense, true worship can only be carried out by Christians, those who've been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And all other worship is unacceptable to God, no matter how sincere the person is. And that can be a really hard thing for a person to hear. You remember how Cain responded when his offering was rejected by God. He was livid, right? He was very upset and extremely angry. And yet as Christians, we're called to share the truth of the gospel message in love like Jesus did with the Samaritan woman. I mean, think about some of the things that Jesus said to her, how he touched on some of the most sensitive and vulnerable areas of her life. He began by challenging the way of the view that she had of the Jews and Samaritans intermingling with one another. He then challenged her understanding of the scripture and her view of salvation through Jacob. He also very subtly pointed out her sin without condemning her. And he then questioned her view of worship that she had learned from childhood. I mean, if, if, if anyone was ever going to be offended by the gospel, it was this Samaritan woman, right? But surprisingly, instead of running away, she listened well because Jesus' goal with her was to make her a true worshiper of God. And so he says to her that true worship must be done in spirit and in truth because worship itself is spiritual in nature and cannot be connected to a specific place. And this means that how we worship God is far more important than where we worship God. And I think this is a very important lesson for us to learn here at Covenant City Church on how we should approach online worship on Sunday mornings. Because currently we're not able to meet together in person at a specific place to worship God. So how we worship God right now at this time is far more important than where we are currently worshiping God. So Jesus is telling us indirectly that God is more concerned with the quality of our worship as Christians, whether it be online or in person, individually or collectively. You see, as Christians, we need to do our very best to make sure our hearts are engaged on Sunday mornings in worship and that we're more than just casual observers. Being a father of three kids, I know how hard it is to focus and concentrate on worship when you got kids running all around and a million other things to do in the home, right? I get it. But it's also a good opportunity to train our children to worship, to teach them how to honor God together as a family during difficult times as well as the good times. And I truly believe that if we're faithful in this, brothers and sisters, I truly believe that if we're faithful in our time of worship, that God would pour out an abundance of spiritual blessings upon us at our workplaces, in our homes, and definitely in the life of our children. How we worship God is far more important than where we worship God. God is very concerned with the quality of our worship. But notice that uh, Jesus not only corrects this Samaritan woman's misunderstanding of worship, but he also explains to her very clearly that the only kind of worship that God will accept. Look at verse 24. Jesus says to her, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, I'd like for you to notice how worshiping in spirit and in truth are inseparably connected, right? You can't have one without the other because to worship in spirit without truth ultimately leads to emotionalism, right? Worship in the heart only. You've seen this kind of worship where people 
work themselves up into a frenzy, right? And they reject any sound doctrine or historic confessions. The prophets of Baal in the Bible were emotionalists who cut themselves and danced before their idols in their challenge to Elijah. They were very spiritual and sincere in their worship, but not according to truth. It was heart worship alone. On the other hand, to worship in truth without the spirit is to fall into legalism and self-pride, which is head worship. The vast majority of the religious leaders in Jesus' day were guilty of this, right? They had the right doctrine, but they were without any real spiritual life on the inside. And so they were legalists who were proud and unloving towards others. You see, they worshiped God with their head only and not their hearts. So worshiping God in spirit and in truth involves both our heads and our hearts working together as one. And this kind of worship is the result of the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. He works within us to cause us to love God with sincerity. And Jesus is saying that this is the only way that God wants to be worshipped, the only kind of worship that God will accept. He desires this from us as his people, the kind of worship that engages our minds as well as our emotions. Think about it in terms of marriage. It's like my love for my wife, right? It's both uh, mental and emotional love, right? You see me? The relationship that I have with her is not built solely on emotions alone, right? Or feelings alone, right? That would change, right, with time. But my relationship with my wife is built on a rational commitment that I made to her when I asked her to marry me. My mental understanding of who she is as a person and what she means to me. Like true worship, my love for her is therefore genuine and a genuine expression of the way that I feel about her emotionally. Right? and who I understand her to be intellectually. So in a sense, you could say that I love my wife in both spirit and in truth. And this is the way that God wants us to love him as well, willingly and genuinely from our hearts as believers, not out of any obligation, but because it's our delight. It's what we want to do. We genuinely desire to worship God. And this is what it means to worship him in spirit and in truth. And it's also the only kind of worship that he will accept. And this brings us to our third and final point, which is true worship is what the Father seeks. Look at the middle of verse 23. Jesus says that the Father is seeking such to worship him. Now, notice the emphasis here on the verb seeking, meaning that God is in the business of actively seeking out people to worship him. In other words, God himself is the one who takes initiative in a person's salvation. Now, this is not only great news for non-Christians, but it also has important implications for Christians as well, for those of us who have been saved by faith, for how we understand and interpret our very own salvation, especially those of us who were not born into a Christian household. You see, there was once a time when all of us were lost, when we all walked in darkness and hated the light, when we were all spiritually dead, separated from God and without any hope in this world. Have you ever been separated from something, somebody that you love? You know, not, not long ago, my wife and I were um, at an Ikea store in Central City. And as we were casually walking around uh, throughout the various departments in the store, we noticed that one of our sons had gone missing. 
And after several minutes of searching for him and shouting out his name, we finally realized that somehow he must have gotten lost throughout the storm. Now, unfortunately, being from America at that moment and hearing all kinds of horror stories that happened to kids in stores, I couldn't stop my mind from wondering if my son had somehow been abducted. In that very moment, my heart sank within me as I began to be terrified at the thought that I might never see my son again. And fortunately for us, one of the workers at the store had already found him and tucked him safely away in the play area. It's so hard to explain to you the joy that I felt the very moment that I realized that my son had been refound and restored to our family. I realized at that moment just how much I loved him and how I would search heaven and earth to find him. You see, the Bible says that God loves us so much that he personally goes searching for us, that he seeks us out, and he will literally move heaven and earth till he finds us and restores us to himself. You see, God himself takes the initiative in our salvation by giving us his Holy Spirit and awakening us to the dangers of living our lives in continual sin and rebellion to his commandments. And this means that everything that we experience as believers before we were converted, no matter how hard it was, no matter how painful it felt, no matter how bad it seemed at the time, was ultimately working for our good because all of it was being used by God to shatter our pride and to humble us, to rescue us from the unstable foundation of autonomy and self-sufficiency, of living our lives alone in the world, apart from God. Friends, if you have any doubt about God's role in your salvation, just look at Jesus' encounter with this Samaritan woman in our text, how she was excluded from society, marginalized, discriminated against, and completely unable to find true and lasting joy until she met the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, all of her life experiences prior to meeting Jesus was functioning as preparation for her very own eternal salvation. And therefore, everything that she experienced was absolutely necessary in the long run to bring her to repentance. You see, it wasn't by chance that Jesus came to Jacob's well at the exact same time that she did. Nor was it by accident that he was left alone with her while his disciples went off to buy food. You see, Jesus is always seeking people to worship God, people who would worship him in spirit and in truth, because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So if you're a Christian today, you know that you're not saved because you sought after God, right? It's because God sought after you. You didn't choose God. God chose you. God chose you before the foundation of the world and sent his son to purchase your very own redemption by his blood. He sought you until he found you and rescued you from your hopeless condition by sending the Holy Spirit to pursue you with the good news of the gospel message. And friends, this is ultimately the reason why we worship, because our hearts is filled with thankfulness and gratitude for so great a salvation from a God who loves us passionately and a God who seeks to save the lost. Let's pray. Father, thank you 
for your salvation, Lord. Thank you that you sought us when we were lost, that you purposed from eternity, Lord, to bring us into your family, into your very own family, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us with hearts of gratefulness and thankfulness, Lord, to serve you out of pure love for what you've done for us. Father, we thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would awaken us on Sunday mornings and the rest of the week to engage in true worship. Father, thank you for all that you've done. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.